Thank you, praise team, for leading us in worship of our Lord. If you all can take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, and as you do, if we could ask you to stand one more time as we read God's Word. And we'll be reading specifically from Mark chapter 7 today. Mark chapter 7, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. You may all have a seat. And please bow your heads with me as we lift up our request to the Lord. Heavenly Father God, we come before you this morning and we first acknowledge that you are God and that you are far above us. You are separate and you are holy and you are the only God. And we also know that you are a God who has drawn near to us through Christ And we know that even we have access before the throne of grace because of your kindness and your mercy. Today, many across our country are celebrating Father's Day. So we take the time now to acknowledge you, our perfect Heavenly Father, who provides every spiritual and physical need. And we thank you that you are a Father who is present with us and at work, sovereignly working out every circumstance for the good of those whom you call your children. We don't presume to understand your ways and your purposes, but we trust in all the things that you're doing. Even for those among us who are experiencing physical or financial hardship in our church, we know that even through these difficulties, and even especially through these difficulties, you are accomplishing your will. We know that you are a father who heals physically and a God who provides materially. So we ask that you would bring healing and provision in ways that we are unable to on our own. We pray for Mark and for Ted and their families as they are in Southern California this weekend, as well as any other members of our church family who are traveling this week. We ask for traveling mercies for them, and would you bring them safely home after a time away? Lord, I lift up the engaged couples of our church. You know the challenges that they are facing at this moment, but also the ways that they're preparing to represent the gospel in their marriages. I ask and I pray that you would grow each of them through the premarital process and as you take them through their wedding day and into their marriages. We pray for those who are expecting. 
We praise you for the blessing that these families will have, the tremendous gift of life in the womb. And we ask that you protect and sustain that life in the womb and prepare these parents to raise their children in your instruction. We pray for those who have recently welcomed children into the world. There are many ways that new parents are stretched beyond their ability. And as hard as that can be, we know that it is a grace and a kindness to care for a newborn as it points to you, the God who gives and sustains life. God, as much as you are a father who provides physically and materially, you are also a father who provides every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For salvation through Christ and the continual presence of your spirit with us, we ask for those among us who are spiritually struggling, those whose faith is weak, those who are faint-hearted, those who are unruly even. We know that we have a God who supplies every reason and every means to come to you, to lay our shortcomings at the cross, and to submit ourselves to your transforming grace. I ask that you would produce the fruit of holiness and sanctification in the lives of all of our church members, that we would be light in the midst of darkness in a city set on a hill whose light cannot be hid, that all people may praise you. We pray for those who are on the mission field. We think specifically of the Morales family as they prepare to head to Columbia after an extended period of preparation. Would you provide them everything that they need? and that the church in Columbia would grow through the gospel being faithfully carried out in their community. We pray for our own mission field here, our families, our co-workers, and friends who have not responded to, in repentance and faith to the gospel. And we know that our words won't convince anyone of their need for Christ and the dire state of their souls, but it is our faithfulness with your words which expose darkness and give life. Would you bring salvation to those who have yet to place their faith in you? And we also pray for our own members, because the gospel is not only a message for those who are not saved. It is for each of us. It is your gospel that makes us new, that enables us to put sin to death, and to hear and respond to the instruction from your word. Lord, would you sanctify us and help us to rely on the strength that you have supplied As Peter comes up to teach us from your word, may our lives be submitted to it and benefit from it. And thank you for this joy that you've given us, for the new life that is no longer bound by our sin, and for the promises that we get to look forward to in your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Hello? Is this on? Can you guys hear me? Hello? All right. Well, happy Father's Day to everyone here today. And for those of you who are joining us on live stream, we want to welcome you as well uh, for coming to join us uh, at the worship service today. Um, let's uh, mark as. As Kevin said, Mark and Ted are out of town, and so we hope that they have a safe trip. Uh, But this has been a time for them to spend some time with their own families, so let's keep them in prayer. Um, I am uh, going to uh, open us up with just a quick word of prayer, uh, primarily just to simply ask the Spirit to help me bring you the word. So bow with me one more time. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again uh, for what you're doing in this church through your word, through the Spirit, and I ask for mercy as I bring your word to your congregation um, accurately and a way that honors you that the Spirit can work powerfully through this teaching on 
our passage today. We pray for mercy and grace in this, and I pray that um, the ears, who has the ears to hear, will perk up and cherish the very words of Christ today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Well, like I said before, it is Father's Day, and I just wanted to simply just say again, Happy Father's Day for those who are, who are those of you who are fathers. Um, I just want to maybe, just, you know, I was trying to think about what what I can say about you know Father's Day because that's that's not our focus for today. But I did want to just say a quick few points um, after being, you know, Joyce and I have been married for over ten years now. We have three children, a blessing to us, a grace to us. And, uh, you know, what, what are some things I learned as a father? I can at least maybe bring up a few thoughts about that. And um, number one is teach and speak the word of God often in your household. Um, you know, that establishing that as a father uh, is irreplaceable. It, is at, it was at the exhortation of my own wife who came to me and said, we should be reading scripture more. And that's not how I grew up. Uh, as, a, uh, as a Christian My mom and dad were not saved So I never saw that modeled for me Maybe many of you have never seen that modeled For um, it for you And so it was strange to me To be reading the Bible daily almost And reading it and praying together But once you start getting a habit of it um, I can't think of a day that goes by That we don't do that And so you can build that habit Read the Bible um, Teach the Bible Second um, Discipline your children um, in a gentle, compassionate way, but discipline them. Um, being silent about your children's faults and their sins does them no good. And so that's something as a father I also learned. But then that also ties in with number three is reassure them and encourage them very often. Um, if you're going to discipline them a lot, I would say reassure them uh, just as much and encourage them and remind them how much you love them. Um, and then number four is my favorite, uh, wrestle with them a lot. Uh, just, you know, I just roll around with them, wrestle with them, hug them, and uh, as a father, there's nothing more than doing that. And then the fifth one and the last one, I'll just say, is, um, is show humility as a father. Expose your own sins. Ask for forgiveness often. Um, them seeing that is a picture of the gospel more than almost anything you can do. That, that they see your own sinfulness and that you can acknowledge it um, teaches them that the gospel is true. That Christ really is real in your life. And, uh, and so, fathers, um, you know, we all play such a unique and critical role in our families. Um, happy Father's Day to, to you, and I pray that the Lord continues to do a mighty work in your families. Um, with that said, the message today is titled, What Does It Mean to Believe? What Does It Mean to Believe? Many of you have noticed uh, that, um, you know, just... Some of the changes that happened in our praise team over time uh, in the past uh, year and a half now. And one of the biggest things was that when I came in and took over praise team, I wanted the word of God to be driving everything. And that really brought me to this passage that we're going to be talking about today. And it really became foundational for the ministry to grow. Uh, So what I'm teaching you guys is something that I've taught our praise team and that we've really built a foundation on that I hope can also help you to continue to grow. And, um, and when I say, what does it mean to believe? I mean, of course, what does it mean to believe in the gospel? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It's common in Christianity for Christians to say, just believe in the gospel. 
it's common in our Christian faith to say, just believe in Jesus and everything will be okay. Or just believe in the Bible and you're going to be all right. Believe upon the name of Jesus and you will be saved. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. However, you're all aware that the word believe can take on different meanings. Depending on the context. Especially in this world. When I was younger, um, in high school, there was a song that played on the radio over and over again. Um, it was a song by an a, a artist named R. Kelly. And the words just kept going, I believe I can fly. Over and over again on the radio. I mean, the word believe is a common theme in, in just all types of media that we listen to and watch. Disney movies. You know, with kids, uh, as fathers, you end up re-watching a lot of the Disney movies, the old ones as well. And there's a really well-known song in the Disney world where it's called, uh, When You Wish Upon a Star. And uh, this is the lyrics of that song. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are, anything your heart desires will come to you. If your heart is in your dream... No request is too extreme when you wish upon a star as dreamers do. That, my friend, is uh, the anthem of the world, isn't it? The, The word belief, the power of belief, can take on a certain form and shape as if your belief can change something. Like your belief can actually do the work. There was another movie, and this is interesting. It's with Will Ferrell. It's called Elf. You guys ever watch this? He's a super tall guy that was raised by elves. Really hilarious concept. But at the end of the movie, Santa Claus is trying to bring the presents you know, to the children. And on his sleigh, there's a Christmas meter that is there. And because people were, didn't have the Christmas spirit around the world, that Christmas meter was going down. And Santa Claus didn't have the energy to bring the, the, um, the presents to, to children. And so, somehow, uh, you know, they, the, the heroes of the story, they realized they needed to get people to sing in Christmas carols. And because the world started believing in Santa Claus again, he had the power to take the presence around the world. And, uh, and people think that's what makes an inspiring story. See, the problem is, people come to church, and we have a hard time understanding what it means for you what you think it means to believe in Christ. What you think it means to believe in God. Because if you take that concept and you bring it to church, I mean, is your existence of God based on how fervent you sing his praise songs and how fervent you live out the word of God? And the answer is no. He exists and his glory is just as much glorified whether you believe in him or not. You see, I'm convinced that one of Satan's most powerful attacks in the world is to control the narrative on what it means to believe. We all know that believing in Jesus is critical to one's salvation. I'm not discounting that at all. Believing in Jesus is critical to one's salvation and reconciliation with God. We were born in sin and separated from the holy and righteous God. Only to have him send his son Jesus to to earth as a human child and live the perfect and righteous life 
and willingly gave his own life on the cross to lost sinners. So make no mistake, believing in the gospel is absolutely critical for salvation. As Christians, we probably even know some verses on this. Maybe you've thrown this around during evangelism. But perhaps the most famous one is John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We all know that one. And it says what? You must believe. So, we all could agree that believing is very biblical. But is it just a matter of believing? I mean, what does it really mean when the Bible says you must believe? How many of you are into social media? Facebook? Raise your hand. Facebook? Most of you? Okay. Well, we do all our newsletters at church on Facebook, so you should be on it. Um, Instagram? You guys do Instagram? Oh, about half of you. Okay. How about TikTok? You guys? No? I'm seeing shameful looks. TikTok, no way. All right. I'm not surprised. Um, To be honest with you, I'm not really that much into social media. Um, I have a Facebook account primarily to stay connected with the church and some friends. Um, But you guys will notice I'm not one to post very often. Um, I have an Instagram account. I don't really post anything on that as well. Um, But, uh, you know, a couple years ago, I heard about this new uh, app called TikTok. And I'm in in sales and marketing, and it was going to be this new revolution on like, okay, this is going to take over the world kind of thing. So I was curious about it, so I, I downloaded it, and, and uh, um, just to one of the, just pure curiosity, guys, I swear. It was just curiosity. Um, but then I got into it, all right? And I, I started realizing that, oh my gosh, like, this is really weird and interesting. And I didn't just get into it just watching it. I was actually making videos, too. And I started, like, really getting into it and trying to figure out, like, what makes you know, TikTok tick, because it was kind of like something that a lot of people were getting into. Some videos were getting millions of views, tens of thousands of views, hundreds of thousands of views. And I realized that there was Christian content on it. And so I started going, well, this can be a great medium for just spreading the word of God. So I started posting Christian content. And, um, and some of you know I have a TikTok account, so that's not a surprise for some of you guys. But here's what's interesting, okay? Ever so often... Someone would come on TikTok and post something that I became a Christian because of these TikTok videos that I've watched. And these messages always got millions of views, hundreds of thousands of comments and likes. And, you know, people from even the Buddhist religion saying, welcome, that you found, glad that you found the truth. And unbelievers even commending them that they found at least something that they can be passionate about. And, um, and of course, people welcoming them to the kingdom. And, um, and the more I got to know other Christians on TikTok, not only were many of them not going to church, many of them never even got baptized, and some of them are just watching more and more videos on YouTube and, and TikTok. And then there's something else that started going on in TikTok that really concerned me, that this concept called the virtual church, on Sundays, you can literally just remotely just dial into church from wherever you are, and there's a pastor who will play one or two praise songs, give you a 20-minute message, and they call that church now. And I started shaking my head going, there's something wrong here. I mean, is this really the way that we are to evangelize one another 
See, I understand that salvation is by Christ alone. Don't get me wrong. Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, glory to God alone. I know that salvation is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's grace to us. You don't earn it, right? But that's not what I'm questioning here. What I'm really asking here is how do you live in that grace? How do you receive that gift? What does it really mean to live in Christ? In other words, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? John Piper, he made an interesting quote um, about this. And uh, he said, I want to know what it means to believe. I'm required to believe in order to be saved. And this world is full of such crazy ideas about what believing is. He's asking the same question. What does it mean to believe? Well, that interesting journey kind of got me to start thinking more again and asking this fundamental question. Do I know what it means to believe? And some of you might be experts in Christianity and maybe this question is too fundamental for you, but hopefully you can humor me for a second here. And just come along and let's just see what scripture has to say about this in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, verses 1 through 6, which I believe has the answer for us today. Let's turn there. In Matthew 13, verses 1 through 6. And hopefully you have your Bibles with me and you can follow along as I read the word of God. Starting with verse 1 of chapter 13. And it says, That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground. Here they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But with the sun rose, and they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him here. Now what I would like to do with this parable is we'll talk about what it means together. And I want to point out some important observations. Some observations that I didn't quite notice many years of reading this passage that will help us to go a little deeper in this passage. But it's going to help us understand the mechanics of true belief. This is one of Jesus' earliest recorded parables. And the parable is probably best defined as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Um, It's a simple parable to understand, at least on the earthly side, and especially for the audience at that time. Jesus probably said it to a bunch of villagers in Capernaum, along with his disciples, who were farmers and um, who lived in that agricultural type of society. Now, what makes a parable interesting 
is that there's room for misunderstanding it. The earthly story is just a superficial veneer. But underneath is a profound teaching about the kingdom of God. And I don't have too much time to go into this. But for the sake of uh, building the right foundation, um, let's pause a little bit. And I just want to talk a little bit about why is Jesus talking in parables? What's a parable and what's it for? And the number one thing that we all have to understand is Jesus didn't speak in parables because they are inspiring nice stories. That's probably the most popular take on the parables of Jesus. They're nice. Everyone likes a story. I remember asking some members, hey, how did the last few of my sermons go? And they're like, need more stories. You need more stories. Everyone loves stories. But that's not the point here. Jesus didn't start talking in parables because they needed more stories. In fact, it was a deliberate attempt to provide a barrier to understanding the truth. In verse 10 of chapter 13, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, why do you speak to them in parables? Signifying they didn't understand what Jesus was doing. In verse 11, it turns out that Jesus is making his teachings exclusive to his followers only. And Jesus even calls the teachings that are hidden in the parables the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So most people will misunderstand the parables to be some sort of inspiring way to teach, but instead it's actually a form of what I would call kind of an intermediary judgment. It's not like the fire and brimstone type of wrath of God judgment. It's an intermediary form of judgment. He's making the truth a little harder to get to. And I don't think people realize how terrifying the judgments of God can be. When you finally realize what Jesus is actually doing here, you soon realize it's almost like he's what you would call in sports, threading the needle. It's when, you know, a football player or a basketball player passes the ball between two, two other guys to get it to his destination, and you're threading that needle. You have a very small gap, and you have to have a lot of skill to do it. One time I tried threading the needle playing basketball and I hit someone in the face. Obviously, I don't have that skill that I need. But Jesus is doing that here with language. He's doing this with language. And I just want us to take a pause that when we think of Jesus, we think of him as Lord, we think of him as Savior, creator of the world, but rarely do we ever worship the Lord for having mastery over language. But that is exactly what we see here. He's threading the needle to the kingdom of God using creative liberty with his words. So only certain people can understand it. And this is a very different type of Jesus that's preached in churches all over America. But Jesus of the Bible, he knows when to draw the line on judgment. And this requires a mastery over language and communication that very few Christians give Jesus credit for. Because they don't realize that the parables are both revealing and concealing the truth all at the same time. The parables are judging the audience and showing mercy at the same time. And the parables do that primarily because Christ is deliberately doing that. Now let me take a moment here and let me zoom out of the situation. 
Because this is going to help you put a little more context to this. Because what we're seeing here, with the way Jesus is interacting with the Jewish leaders and his disciples and everyone, is that he's creating a greater separation between his disciples and the leaders of Israel. That's what the parables start to do. And if you read Matthew 13, verse 1, you skipped over the first three words, which is actually perhaps the most important in providing context. In Matthew 13, 1, it reads, that same day. That same day. It's a continuation of something that happened prior to chapter 13. You have to go to chapter 12 to figure out what's going on in that day, and you realize there's a lot of things that happened on that same day. And we don't have time to go over every little point. But I want to just mention one thing in Matthew 12 that plays a key role on why Jesus is talking in parables. And that's going to be the passage of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit found in Matthew 12. You see, the Jewish leaders should have known that Jesus was the Messiah. They should have known through his miracles. He was healing And he was healing the blind. He was healing the crippled. He was healing the lame. These were miracles never before done by anybody. And yet, in Matthew 12, we find out the Pharisees blamed who? For the power of the miracles. Satan. They did not want to give credit to the Holy Spirit. They did not want to give credit to God that these miracles were being driven by God alone. And Jesus essentially says, well, that's unforgivable. That's unforgivable. So what you get here is you start seeing a group of people being formed as Jesus are doing these miracles and is getting rejected one by one by each leader. A group of people are being formed that are no longer forgivable. And so, when Jesus is explaining to the disciples why he speaks in parables, not only is it a secret of the kingdom, not only is this only for his disciples, but the parables will prevent unforgivable people from possibly getting saved. And that's the quote in Matthew 13, verses 14 to 15, which is a quote from Isaiah. And let's just read verse 15 for a second. And it says, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. I will prevent them from understanding the truth, lest they be forgiven. How powerful is the gospel that he has to hide it in parables? The gospel is powerful enough to save the unforgivable. Now, what's going on is a terrifying shift of the way Jesus is communicating the truth. And it makes the truth harder to understand, but easier for his disciples. Now, what makes parables interesting is that you're left wondering what the spiritual meaning is. And Jesus gives the secret to the disciples by explaining the meaning of the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower. By the way, sometimes people title this parable the parable of the soils. But Jesus calls it the parable of the sower. Let's call it what Jesus calls it. The parable of the sower. Jump down 
to verse 18 of chapter 13. And we're going to read Jesus' explanation of this parable. And this is what Jesus says privately to the disciples. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he who has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So how does one understand the parables of Jesus? Simple. You must have a discipleship relationship with Jesus. How do you understand his parables? You simply go to Jesus and ask, like the disciples did, what does the parable mean? That's how you understand the parable. So for those that were standing around who had no intention of really following Christ or really wanting to know the meaning, they would be kept in the dark. So Jesus goes on and teaches in parables. Let's go back to the passage now. Let's talk about the explanation of this parable of the sower. What we have here in the parable of the sower, we've got a sower in the sower, uh, parable of the sower. We have seeds. We have four types of soil. And you even have a bird in the story. We can figure out what the bird is. The sower... I'm going to make this really simple, is Jesus Christ. And I think most people will agree with that. The sower is Jesus Christ. The seeds, as the explanation goes, is the sower's seeds, which are his words. The words of the kingdom. To be more specific, the words on how to enter into the kingdom. What we would call today the gospel. Okay, So when I say the gospel, the words of the kingdom... Let's treat them as equivalent. Okay? So these are, this is the word of the gospel. And the four types of soil, Jesus explains this. You got the path, the rocky soil, the thorny soil, and the good soil. And so, so when Jesus explains this, the soils really represent four types of hearts that receives the gospel. The path, the first soil, is what I would call the hardened heart. The path is the hardened heart. This is where the truth superficially bounces off the heart and the person never comes to an understanding of the gospel. The message he hears is snatched away by a bird, which Jesus says is the evil one, also known as Satan. That's the path. The second soil is the rocky soil. The rocky soil. This is the one that I would call the shallow heart. The shallow heart. This is where the person receives the message but has no deep roots in their faith. And there's a lack of depth to their faith that is fragile 
and they walk away from their faith once trials come. That's the rocky soil. The thorny soil, the third soil, is what I would call the worldly mixed heart. The worldly mixed heart. Because this person is trying to attain both the kingdom and the success and accolades of this world at the same time. So the thorny soil is the worldly mixed heart. And then the fourth soil, the good soil, this is the person who shows fruit of the word of God in their life. The fruit of the word of God in their life. So what we have here are four types of hearts and one type of seed. Four types of hearts and one type of seed. Now many times, I heard this parable taught and preached to me, and I've probably been a Christian now for about 25 years easily. It's always been sort of taught that these are spiritual struggles. So it was preached something like this. If you have a hardened heart, you need to soften your heart for the Lord so you can receive the word. If you have a rocky heart, plow that rocky heart. And fertilize that soil of your heart so that you can receive the word. And if you have a thorny heart, get rid of the thorns in your life so you can receive the word. All that you can have a good heart. I don't think that's the way I would preach this parable after studying it deeper. Because you see, this parable is not about spiritual struggles. The parable is more about spiritual counterfeit. There's a difference. How can we tell? What's the difference? Like, what does it matter? Well, the context of the passage, there's a few things that I'll bring up here, and I'll tell you why they're significant. First of all, this is a secret to the kingdom of God. And what that implies is that everything the parables are hiding the truth that it's hiding, it was never taught in the Old Testament. This is all New Covenant teaching. This is not Old Covenant teaching. So when Jesus in chapter 13 says that he who understands will get more understanding, but he who does not understand, even what he understands will be taken away from him, he's literally turning the whole knowledge paradigm upside down. Because up till then, no one studied harder or memorized harder the Old Testament than the Pharisees. They knew it inside and out. Many of them memorized the Torah, the first five books. And I would gather many of you probably never even memorized five verses in your life. But they memorized the Torah. They knew it. And all of a sudden, everything they knew in the Old Testament is not going to amount to anything. Because Jesus is providing truth in the new covenant. And the new covenant is about the gospel. Secondly, this is also in the Jewish context. Any Jews here today? Any chance? No? I didn't think so. That's what makes the Bible sometimes challenging to understand is we have to go back into that world. You got to understand the Jewish thinking here. And rabbis, Jewish rabbis, when they taught a parable or a lesson, they usually left a portion of the conclusion left to be filled by the audience. It's a kind of a bread, leaving a breadcrumb style of teaching. 
And those, if you knew the context behind the teaching, could fill it really easily. So there's a Jewish context here. And then this is also an agricultural story. So when you put these together, we're going to find out that it's pretty clear what Jesus is getting at here. The secret of the kingdom of God is not how to keep yourself from spiritually struggling, necessarily. Okay? That's not really the ultimate point of this. It's really about how to keep yourself from spiritual deception. Spiritual deception. Like I said earlier, this is about Jesus starting to separate his disciples, who would eventually become the church. This is the starting of the church age. Whereas before, everyone had to be assimilated into the nation of Israel, into the temple system to be saved. But we know by 70 AD, the temple is going to be destroyed. All centralized forms of worship is going to be destroyed. And so if centralized forms of worship is going to be destroyed, churches really are a decentralized form of worship all around the world. And if it's decentralized, that means that a lot of people are going to say they're a belief. There's a lot of people who are going to claim to be Christians. There's a lot of people who are going to be just walking into church. How do you know who truly believes? How do we know? And Jesus is providing that wisdom here. So one of the debated things about this parable is whether the rocky soil or thorny soil are saved people. That's one of the debated things about this parable. But... Let's go on here, and I think there's going to be some clarity here. If you were in the audience and living in an agricultural society here, if you were in that audience when Jesus shared the parable, okay, and since you understood farming and sowing and seeds, none of this stuff was new to you, you'd understand that farmers are interested in profit. You don't grow crop just to see what grows. You grow crop to get a return. So the only thing farmers care are about profitable crops. And the seed falling in the path is completely unprofitable. It's a waste of seed. It's a loss of seeds. That's what you would have been thinking if you are in the audience. Well, it's just a waste. Well, who would do that? It's a waste of seed. You wouldn't do that. And the seed falling on rocky soil, it would get scorched in the sun, and the audience knew immediately that that just ends up with dead branches. That would end up in a rubbish pile. And then the third, the seed falling on thorny soil would just end up with weeds and thorns. And those would need to get pulled out eventually. And those would end up in a rubbish pile. And the only soil that didn't end up in a rubbish pile was the good crop. That they had to let grow. Because this crop multiplied itself. That's what 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold implies. That this is a crop that multiplies itself. 30-fold meaning 30 times itself. 60-fold means 60 times itself. So back then, 20-fold was a great crop. If a crop gave you a 20-fold return, you literally hit the jackpot. So Jesus is using hyperbole here, 30, 60, 100, which the audience was like, oh my goodness, this is miracle grow. Where could I get some of this stuff? Right? But Jesus is not talking about actual farming. He's talking about spiritual testimony. Now, do you guys know what they did with the rubbish pile back then? If you were to build one up with dead branches and thorn bushes, it will be used for the fire. Used for the fire. You would burn it for heat, sometimes for cooking. 
Whatever you needed for fire. It was fuel for fire. What does that remind you of? Reminds you of hell. So what we really have here is the hardened heart that is on his way to hell virtue of having no value to the sower. The rocky heart that is on his way to hell virtue of having no value to the sower. The thorny heart that is on his way to hell virtue of having no return to the sower. But the good heart is the only type of heart that brings a return to the sower. After all, this is called the parable of the sower. It's all from his perspective. This is the parable of the sower, who we know to be Christ. Now that we've built that kind of a foundational part, I want to make this critical observation here. That changed the way I view evangelism and discipleship. And maybe it will for you too as well. Notice where the seed is on all four, to- four types of soil. Take a look. Notice where the seed is on all four types of soil. For the path, the heart and heart, the seed never even made it into the heart. If Christ's words never even makes it into your heart, you'll have no chance for salvation. In fact, what's the significance of the bird snatching away the message? That what, what kind of strange imagery is there? How does Satan do that? By absorbing the truth. He built a world system and structure that devalues God's truth. That if you don't value it, living, going back into this world, you're going to forget it. Because you'll read the next sports news clipping. Stock portfolio news. Endless world news of pandemics, earthquakes, war. Your job stress. Your family stress. Your personal life stress. That takes precedence over the words of Christ. The hardened heart has no chance to be saved. They're not even going to remember the message. Satan is in the business of keeping souls from being saved. And he has created a world that makes you care about earthly things more than heavenly things. I mean, why is it so hard to remember the point of a sermon the very moment you leave the sanctuary? Have you tried that? Ask someone, what did you think of the sermon? And they'll be like, oh, what was the sermon about? Scary, isn't it? That's exactly the world we live in. It absorbs the truth of God. And that's what Satan has done. So it snatches it away. The hardened heart not only rejects it, but won't even remember it to think about it later to be saved. That's what the point is. Now that's not the most scary part here. If you move on to the rocky soil, the shallow heart, take notice that the seed is in the heart. The seed is in the heart. This is a person who actually accepted the gospel message. But he accepted it, or he or she accepted it, with a shallow heart. And this person never grew or matured in the word of God. And so every time the pastor said, you should read your Bible, do your quiet times, join a discipleship group, 
Find a prayer partner. Become a member of a church. Find a place to serve. These are all things that the Bible teaches you should be doing. Get baptized. Some people never feel the weight of those commands. They never feel the weight of those commands. And I've, I've met people like this. People who've been believers for 30 years. Still haven't been baptized. Never became a member of a church. One person I met literally came to church, sat in the back, and left early for 30 years, not knowing a single person in their congregation. Never met the pastor. But that's the shallow heart. They never grow deeper in the Word of God, but they believe they're on their way to heaven. Now, this is the the scarier one. And I think this is a more common heart we find in the church. And this is the thorny soil. The worldly mixed heart. Notice the seed is in the heart. This person also accepted the gospel. But because they tried to love the world and God, it choked out any potential fruit of the word of God in their life. They thought they can have it all. They wanted to get rich. They wanted to get accolades of the world. They wanted to get a six-pack, so they had an exercise program, but they never had a Bible reading program. They wanted the beautiful family, picket white fence, nice house. It's almost like the prosperity gospel, but, but this is not coming out of Joel Osteen's church. We find people like this in all types of Protestant, conservative Bible churches. They're trying to get into heaven their own way. And we meet people like this, especially here in Silicon Valley, where the corporations here, they will push you really hard. And I work for one too. And sometimes after a day of work, the last thing I want to do is creak open the Bible or pray. I'm so stressed out sometimes. And I feel your pain, guys. But if you love the Word of God more, if you know that the words of Christ really brings you life, just like that song we sang today, Show Us Christ, right? The words of Christ. You will value the words of Christ more than career success. You will value it more than any type of superficial success in this world. But for the thorny, this worldly mixed heart, they're trying to have it all. And it all just ends up in in thorns. And they're never happy. They're never happy at church. They're never happy at work or career or whatever their hobby is because they're not putting enough time in anything they care about. Everything just sort of averages out. The pastor says, you got to be at the church at some some day and some time and they feel guilty. Ah, I can't be there. The boss says, you got to work extra hours and you you don't want to miss church. You feel guilty. Can't be there either. This person is miserable. And they're trying to enter heaven in their own way. So let me just pause for a second. And I want to allow you to feel the weight of that observation alone. That the gospel message can be in a person's heart of someone who claims to believe and they could be on their way to hell. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The secret of the kingdom in this parable is not simply to share how to keep yourself from spiritually struggling. This is the words of Christ hidden in a parable that is trying to make a delineation between what it means to truly believe and falsely believe in the gospel. And this is what it really means to believe in Jesus. You could turn to the next slide at this point. If you take the, the bad soils and you turn it into opposites, it really gives you the full meaning of what really Christ is getting, to ha- getting here. Because what it really means to believe in the gospel is to first receive the word of God, unlike the hardened heart. Second, it means to grow in the word of God. Unlike the shallow heart. Third, it means pure devotion to the word of God. Unlike the worldly mixed heart. But ultimately it leads to the good heart which is obedience to the word of God. Obedience to the word of God. Someone might be carrying the gospel message in their heart and on the day of judgment find themselves being treated like an unbeliever by God through self-deception unless they repent and unless you cry out to God and admit your lack of power to save yourself and your sinfulness and accept the gift of the gospel not something you attain the life of obedience is never from you It's always a result of the Holy Spirit. But people who never got their Holy Spirit are trying to live a Christian life. And so you mention a word, a passage in Scripture, or a principle in Scripture, and they don't feel anything. No fear of God. Why? Is it because they're not good enough? No. It's because they never have the Holy Spirit. I met a coworker once, a very sweet and nice lady, an executive assistant at this company I was working for. She told me about her marriage, her husband, and she had a, a, a six-year-old son. And she would tell me that they go to church every Sunday, and uh, she's a Christian, but she never got baptized and never really got plugged into the church. And she was doing this for 15 years. And I finally asked her, well, the Bible commands you to be baptized and become a member of a church. Did you ever consider doing that? And she said, but what if I don't like the people? What if they don't like me? What if I don't like it there? Excuse after excuse after excuse. And uh, I remember just 
praying for her and uh, just concerned about her salvation. Well, the company I was working for was a startup and we ran out of funding. So the company went under. I had to find a new job. Didn't hear from her for years until about this past year. Messages me on LinkedIn out of nowhere. How are you doing? What's going on? It's been a long time. I said, yeah, how are you doing? And uh, so we just basically caught up very quickly. I just wanted to hear about, hey, how's your faith in the Lord? Are you, are you going to church? Or, and she started breaking out in tears. Her husband, one day, out of the blue, came to her and said, I want a divorce. I don't love you anymore. And she was saying this in tears, and, she, and I said, well, were there problems in your marriage? She said, no, we never argued. We hardly ever disagreed on anything. I, be, I was trying to be the most model wife as possible. He took, to, took us to church every Sunday. And she goes, I don't understand. I don't understand how this could be happening. He reads us the Bible every day. And I said, excuse me. She goes, he reads us the Bible every day. He cares about what the Bible says. How could this be happening? Well, it's actually not that complicated if you understand what the scripture says about it. It's one thing to expose yourself to scripture, but it's another thing to cherish it and to be determined to obey it. And it sounds like he doesn't have that. And I can't do anything about your husband, but I could do something about your faith. Do you want to believe in the gospel? And she said, yes. Then you need to get baptized right away in front of church. That's what scripture commands. You need to obey the word of God. And thankfully, that's what she's trying to do. She's found a church. She's rethinking her whole perspective on what she thought a Christian was. All from ground zero. there's always hope of course someone could still repent later of course all this is God can still change a heart but unless at some point in your life you repent and you actually receive the gospel with a good heart you're not on your way to heaven and if you look at the parable closer it's really about one sower one seed four hearts but what? Six results. Six results from where? Yeah. You've got 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold in the good heart. There's different levels of your spiritual maturity that you can get in this life. And I bet you a lot of people read that and they go, well, I'll just shoot for the 30-fold as long as I get into heaven. And I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to say. The whole point of discipleship in the church is carrying out the command of the great commission in Matthew 28:18 to 20 to baptize in the name in the father son and the holy spirit and what teach them all that i have commanded everything that christ has commanded matters in the christian life 613 commands in the old testament that they have to follow over 1,100 commands in the New Testament that Christ 
is going to hold us to. What's the point of discipleship? What's the whole point? Is it to feel good about your faith? Is it to feel good about yourself? No. It is to get you to obey as many commands of Christ in this life before you die. Because that level of faith will bring honor to the Lord before he unveils himself in the last day. Because once he unveils himself in the last day, you won't get credit for that faith. That's not faith. Once you see him face to face, there's no faith there required. But before he unveils himself, that is the age of the gospel. That we believe in the very truth of the Messiah, the very thing that the leaders of of the Jewish nation failed to do, which is to believe he was the Messiah. That is what the Jewish nation failed to do. And that is what the church is here to do, to ultimately discipline the nation of Israel once and for all. For all eternity. And we're going to have glorified bodies to remind them forever and ever that God's grace on the nations was extraordinary. Because the Jewish nation tried to enter into heaven in their own works. It is a gift. The gospel is an extraordinary love and mercy towards us. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve to go to heaven and to have all our sins forgiven. Are you, are you serious? This is ridiculous love towards sinners. That he will cancel out all your debt and give you a glorified body in that you will be sinless and perfect forever like Christ? Amazing. Oh, by the way, that's only if you're in Christ. We created a culture here where just someone who says they believe, you're automatically going to once saved, always saved. And I'm telling you, that's a dangerous, dangerous teaching. Because someone could accept the gospel with the wrong heart. And they're not on their way to heaven. We need to pray for those people. And hopefully, God will have the mercy to grant repentance and salvation to them. This is why Lighthouse Bible Church San Jose is here and Lighthouse San Diego and Lighthouse LA and every biblical church in this world saying the same message that you have to repent in Christ. No one's ever going to come to this knowledge of belief by reading a billboard that says believe in Jesus or a bumper sticker or a social media posting. The church is God's Plan A for salvation. It is not an optional nice to have. And we are fulfilling that mission together. So don't give up. God is doing a wonderful work here. And this is why we keep hoping that God would show mercy not only on ourselves, but every person that walks through that door. Bow your heads with me as as I close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for your mercy, for your grace, for showing love to sinners who deserve to be punished in all eternity in hell. You show us the exact opposite through Christ. 
Let us not be self-deceived. Let us not grow weary in doing the hard work of evangelism and discipleship. Let us not lower our value of your church that you are building. That you are the head of the church. That you are the Lord of salvation. Help us, O Lord, to have that wisdom and the continual faith that we need to honor you and believe in you and to grow in you, but ultimately to obey you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.